So we have two readings this morning, Matthew chapter 13, Matthew 13, reading from the parable of the sower, verses 3 through 9, then 18 through 23. And then our sermon text, Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. And just to remind you, Ecclesiastes comes after the book of Proverbs in our Bible. Please stand. Matthew 13, beginning at verse 3. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Going down to verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom... And does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns... This is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown in good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Now turning to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Verses 1 through 6. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves in the earth, and if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Let's pray. Our gracious God and our Father, this is your word. We thank you for it. It is a word for us and for the blessing of your people that we would grow understanding of you, and, but also your calling upon us and how it is that we are to deal with the limitations of our knowledge and our abilities. 
Help us, O Father, then, to consider these things with humility, but also to consider you, the God who has no limitation in what you know or what you're able to do. May we consider these things in awe and wonder, especially in the grace that has been visited upon us by your Holy Spirit, the sweet salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So you see the outline for our text in Ecclesiastes in your, in your bulletin. And I'd like to just simply jump right into it because um, like all poetry, this is extremely condensed. Many of us are intimidated by poetry. Some of us don't like poetry at all. That's too bad because God does. <laughs> and almost one third of your Bible is poetry. Don't be intimidated by it. It just simply means it's language that's been compressed. But what that means is we have to be patient and take our time as we work through it. And there's great virtue and there's good fruit that comes from that hard work. Because poetry is filled with images and pictures that come alive and help us to to understand the truth of God with greater depth. And not just understand it, but to feel it. And perhaps if I had one prayer this morning, it would be just that. That you walk away feeling this text and what it means especially with regard to the spreading of the gospel, as we will see, but you'll have to be patient. Let's begin. Cast your bread upon the waters. Now, what does it mean by bread? It means the same thing that you mean when you pray, as God told you to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And bread there does not just simply mean food. It means livelihood. Everything in your, in your life, your livelihood, your food, your possessions, and your money. And when it says To cast that bread, it means to give of that livelihood. Give of the time and the energy God has given to you. Spread the wealth that he gives you. But the way it's put here is to this word cast. To cast. It doesn't mean throw it away. It doesn't mean be irresponsible. Throw your bread in the waters and perhaps the ducks will come and eat the bread. That's not what it's talking about. The picture here is of a ship that's that's loaded with goods like bread, and it's being cast off to sea. Cast off in the hope that what? That it will return one day filled with merchandise or money or other things that you traded for with everything that was on that ship originally. It's just like the picture we have in Proverbs thirty-one fourteen of the virtuous woman, where it says she is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her bread from afar. So it's the same sort of picture here. And what the author is saying is that What you cast out, it may come back. But strongly here in the ESV, it will come back someday, somehow. It's going to pay off. And the point it's making here is that life is filled with all kinds of risks. You put a ship out in the ocean, there's lots of risks out there. High winds, big waves, things like that. But don't let that intimidate you. Don't be afraid to to venture. Don't let those risks... Uh, make you immobilized, don't let them make you freeze. But let these things actually encourage you to be more free because you don't know. And oftentimes what seems lost to us, it actually may come back. It says you may find it. You will find it. Now, it may be after many, many days, it says, that it comes back. You have to be patient. 
in this regard. It's not going to come back right away. It's not going to come back really in an obvious way. We have lots of students in the room. And almost every student at one point has asked himself or herself, why am I studying this? Why am I studying math? This will never, ever be useful to me, ever. And I, math people always get picked on. So if you love math, I'm sorry. But the rest of us are normal. We don't like math. It says, why is this of any use to me whatsoever? Or if you're into music, why am I doing my scales? This is ridiculous. Let me just play the Rachmaninoff piece and get right to the good stuff, right? Why am I reading these books? Someday it may pay off. You might be spending lots of time and energy on this particular friend. Point of friendship. You might start asking yourself, why am I doing this? It may pay off. Someday. Maybe not necessarily for you. But somebody else is going to reap the benefit of all that time and energy you spent with that person. It just may be after many, many Many days. I have a friend from the Middle East who has a wild conversion story and decided to give his life to, to ministering to others. And one time he was with a group of friends. So New Year's party and his friends decide they're going to take him an offering for him for his ministry. And they did. It was a considerable amount of money. But there was a lady there who was not a Christian from the same country in the Middle East he was from with her daughter. And she had just come to the United States and explained her, her desperate need and uh, the fact that her daughter had this eye condition that she didn't get the surgery soon, that she'd be blind. And as the party broke up, my friend had this profound sense that this money was not for him. It was for her. And he found her in the parking lot, said, this money is for you. She didn't want to take it. Said, it's not for me. It's yours. Says, no, my God wants you to have it. And he gave it to her. And he said, can I pray for you? She said, sure, and he did. Never saw her again. Well, that's not exactly true. Twelve years later, he was visiting a hospital that served an underprivileged area, which he often did. As he comes to the door, the front office people said, there's a woman here upstairs, and she's from the same country you're from. You should go visit her. So he did. He comes to that floor, and as he comes down the floor, he's hearing a conversation taking place where the nurse is saying, What can we do for you? All of us love you. We want you to be comfortable. Here's the voice of this patient. This woman says, I only have one request. I just wish I could see the face of that young man who prayed for me all those years ago and led me to the Savior that I'm about to see. If I could just thank him. And as she finished her sentence, there he was at the door. She turned her head and she said, and there he is. After many, many days, it will come back to you. Now, he says in verse 2, be wise. Don't take dumb risks. Spread it around. The seven different places. Go crazy. Maybe even eight. Now, he's not giving investment advice. This is not about having a diversified portfolio. That's not what it is. He's encouraging you to be wise with your generosity. As you give your life, spread it around. Because you don't know what will or will not pay off. Students don't study just one subject. We don't have just one kind of friend. Farmers don't just plant wheat. They also plant barley, not just corn, but also soy. When you have a garden, you don't just plant one beefsteak tomato. You plant a variety of things. It's the same sort of thing. Why? Because you don't know when disaster may come. Accidents happen, right? This is the book of Ecclesiastes. 
Life is a breath. It's vanity. It comes and it goes. And because of that, the instinct of some is to hoard. It's to hold back. But that's not the way. That's not the way we're supposed to use our gifts or our money or our resources or our bread. And it's counterinstinctive, but Psalm 37 talks about this. The righteous man who is always lending, always lending, giving, and yet his children are never begging. Exactly what our Savior said. In order to find your life, well, first you have to lose. You have to give in order to gain. And if you take risks, you may fail. Nobody wants to fail. Nobody wants to fail the math exam. Nobody wants to fail their driver's license. Nobody wants to fail at relationships or love or in, or in life. But you see that fear of failing is what stops so many people from living and succeeding or experiencing the blessing of giving. Who knows whether this idea or that idea is going to fail or succeed? Who knows whether this friendship is going to fail or succeed? Don't be so cynical. Cast your bread upon the waters. Well, that's because there's some things that you do not know. But there's some things you do know, he says in verses 3 and 4. There's some things that you know are going to happen, and you can't control them. You can't do anything about these things, and yet these things also may cause you not to act, not to share, not to live. And he gives here an example of, of the farmer. And look at verse 3. He talks about that big dark cloud that you see there. It's just saturated with, with moisture. It's full of rain, ready to just burst open. And that can stop you. Now, in suburbia in the Midwest, where people mow lawns, this is something none of you know anything about, there's a teenager who looks outside, and he's been told to go out and mow the grass, but he sees it might rain. He says, it might rain, Mom. I don't want to go out there and get struck by lightning. It's not a good situation, that kind of excuse. But this is actually something more serious as he talks about the farmer who has to pay attention to the weather every single day. The first thing he thinks about when he gets up in the morning, he's looking at the weather. He's thinking about the rain and the wind and the humidity on the wheat harvest. It's not whether the sun is shining or it's dead of night. All that matters is the moisture inside that head of wheat. That's all that matters. The farmer is always paying attention to weather. And he says, but that can be a problem in verse 4. During the planting season, this is when they would cast seed. Literally take their hand and put it in that, in that sack of, of seed and just cast it out. Just like that. But what about that person who's about to do that and he's obsessed about the wind? He says, well, if I cast the seed, the wind's coming up, it might blow it into my neighbor's or into a yard, into this field. Um, it might, might go bad. If he's obsessed about the wind, he'll never do it. The same is true at harvest. When you don't want it to rain, if all he's doing is looking at the clouds and says, it could rain, I bring not harvest, says he'll never do it. And what it's talking about is a person who's become cynical. They look at stuff like this around them, and that's all the excuse that they need not to do something. We call it the paralysis of analysis. When you're thinking too hard about something, you're going to always find something could go wrong with this project. It's also the excuse of the sluggard. In Proverbs 22, he says, I can't go outside and work. There might be a lion out there and I could be killed. You know that there are things that are going to take place and you can't control them. 
He's saying, don't let them control your life. Yes, the rain's going to come. The wind's going to blow. Yes, there's going to be seasons of illness. There are going to be problems. There are going to be setbacks in your project or in your relationships. And yes, this is the book of Ecclesiastes. You need to factor in death itself. But it's also true that the sun will shine. That fair winds will blow. That friendship that you've been concerned about will develop. From all that hard work of study, insights are going to come. And the great risk that you, that you took, you could see how that the success of it made another person's day, made their life. In other words, some things you must, sometimes you must look at the things that you know from the perspective of the things that you do not know. There are some things you know, some things you do not know, but don't let any of them keep you from living. He comes to the end of this in verses 5 and 6. He talks about what God knows. So there's much that you and I do not know or see or understand that only God can see, only God can know, only God can do. Now this phrase, you do not know, appears four times in our text. We saw it in verse 2, you do not know when disaster is going to come, but now it appears three times in verses 5 and 6. You don't know the way the spirit comes into uh, that body in the womb. You don't know the work of God. Verse six, you don't know which will prosper. Now, let's just put this in the context in terms of the works of God. There's God's work of creation by which he makes all things and God's work of providence by which he superintends and rules all things. Both of these are a great mystery to us. How is it that God could create all that we see and all that is unseen? How is it that God can oversee every creature, all life on this planet, every star that he knows by name, all the galaxies, he knows all the worlds. Job wanted to know about these things. He, he wanted answers. All he got was questions to put him in his place. Job, have you commanded the morning since your days began? Can you cause the dawn to know its place? Do you know where is the way to the dwelling of light and where is the place of darkness? No, he doesn't. These are the things that belong to God. Deuteronomy 20 and 29, right? There are those revealed things that God's given to us to obey and to do, but then there are those secret things of God that belong to him. And that's the distinction that's being made here. The things that you and I, we just can't answer. Here's a good example. Verse 5. How and when does the spiritual life of a baby become intertwined with its body? When is that moment? The way that life begins to take shape in the womb. This is a great mystery to us. There's some things we know. By day 14, the entire nervous system of that, of that baby is formed by the second month. Every structure that's necessary for life is there. The brain is functioning. The heart is beating. But there's some things we don't know. What is that point, that first moment of life, when that soul enters that human child? Can you see it? Can you Measure it, how does it happen? You and I don't know. And he's saying that's just a picture of all the works of God that you and I cannot understand. It's like what God said to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 55, where God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts and my ways than your ways. 
Well, if this is true, then what do you do? What should you conclude? Do the things you know. Do the things that you can do and leave the rest to him. Verse 6, sow your seed. Get in there. Get to work. Get your hand in there. Share. Pour into those relationships. Don't be afraid to live. If you gain blessings from life, then share some of those things. And yes, some of your plans are going to fail. They're going to disappoint you. There's going to be losses. That happens to the best of our plans. Some of you young people, teenagers, have heard the phrase of mice and men. You say, well, that's a novel. Oh, it's a novel that took its line from an earlier poem. And that poem comes from a man who in 1785 was plowing his field. And all of a sudden he realized he'd gone right through this nest of mice and he had destroyed their home. And he stopped and he saw a picture of human life in that. And he said this, the best laid schemes of mice and men go often askew. And that farmer was Robert Burns, the poet. And that's true. That happens many times. But there are worse things than failing. Like never trying. Never daring. Never venturing. Never imagining. Or never knowing what could happen in this situation. Go for it. One of my favorite sayings. What's the worst thing that could happen? What's the best thing that could happen? You do not know whether this or that plant will thrive. You do not know whether this plant or that plant will, will bloom, be fruitful. You don't know what this young athlete could become. Let me ask you a question. You are a high school basketball coach. You filled your whole roster except for one last spot. But you have two candidates. You have a six foot seven forward, a five foot ten guard. Which one are you going to pick? You're going to pick the 6'7 guard. All of us would do that. And you just sent away the 5'10 guard whose name is Michael Jordan. You don't know. Well, let me give you another example. You have two businesses you can purchase. You have this brick and mortar one. It's well-established sets. Or there's this other business with two people working out of a garage. And they want you to buy it for $750,000. You're going with the brick and mortar. Guess what? Your name is George Bell. You just passed on Google, which is now worth $1.3 trillion. That's kind of the point that's being made here. You don't know which one's going to succeed, whereas the ends, you don't know which, whether both are going to succeed. Well, how will you know if you never try? There's things that you know, and there's things you do not know. There's things that you can control, things you cannot control. Ecclesiastes is saying, you can't let these things dictate your life. So much of our life is beyond our control. We can't change those things. And we can't let those things keep us from pursuing our duty, our callings, our friends, our family, or being kind and generous to strangers, sharing our bread and our life and our love. And whether those things fail or succeed, Ecclesiastes is saying, just leave that to God. Let him decide which ones are going to be blessed, which of those things he's going to use, and what is the right time for him to bless those things. Perhaps it's going to be after many, many days. Leave that all to him and to his wisdom and to his goodness and to his sovereign power and all the good that he promises you. You need to trust him for that, just like you trust him for your life and your future and your relationships. 
Let him work that out as he sees fit. Now, the reason we read Matthew 13 is because nowhere else is this more true than the spreading of the gospel. And it's a good way to, to kind of capture the point of what, we, what we've gained from Ecclesiastes 11 and bring it into a perspective from the church. And what's interesting in Matthew 13, this is the way it talks about the spread of the gospel. It talks about it in terms of casting seeds. Right? So Ecclesiastes talks about casting your bread, casting the ship. But this is casting seeds. And what's so interesting is one of the old Reformed confessions says that we believe in the promiscuous spreading of the gospel, the promiscuous preaching of the gospel. Not the word we, the way we use promiscuous very often, but it's saying indiscriminate. We just throw it out there. And that's what the parable says. If this parable is trying to teach us to be a good aim with casting your seed, this is not the right parable. Because three out of four times it lands in bad places, right? That seed is cast sometimes among the, on, the, on the path, among the rocks, among the thorns, sometimes in good soil. And of course, those types of soil are the human heart. You and I can't see. We can't know that. We can't control that human heart. In this casting of the seed, it's subject to the wind and to the rain and, and challenging circumstances that are beyond our control, just like in Ecclesiastes 11. And some Christians reach some strange conclusions based upon this, like this one. Well, there's some things we know, like this region of the world, this is too difficult of a region to reach for the gospel. We shouldn't go there. In the 1830s, a group in Scotland sent two missionaries to the New Hebrides Island. Those two men went ashore. Within minutes, they were killed and eaten by cannibals. And the conclusion of some would be, let's don't go back there again. That's not the conclusion John Patton had. He said, with the blood of those two martyrs, Jesus Christ claimed those islands for his own. As his own. And he was determined to go to those islands, which he did in 1858 with his wife, Mary. Can you imagine he talked her into this? They landed on that shore within a year. She was dead. And the newborn son. He persevered for four years with hardly any fruit from his ministry. Many times he was attacked, shot at, threatened, and eventually left to save his life when civil war broke out. But he went to a neighboring island. And there the gospel spread like crazy. Almost the entire island came to Christ. He didn't know anybody that was not converted. He didn't just raise up converts, but teachers and missionaries who went back to this other island and saw the fruit of the gospel. And to this island... And to that island, so that he could report at the end of his life, tens of thousands of Christians on each and every one of these islands, some of them 100% Christianized. What's interesting about this story is that when he was setting out to go, an older minister by the name of Dixon says, you will be eaten by cannibals. To which John Patton said this. So Mr. Dixon, you are old. And soon you're going to be laid in the grave to be eaten by worms. I can only live and die to serve and to honor the Lord Jesus. And it makes no difference to me whether I'm eaten by worms or cannibals. That's the conclusion some Christians reach. This is too hard. We know this. Let's not go there. Some people say, well, God alone knows the elect. And therefore they say we should not freely offer the gospel. That's a very strange conclusion. Yes, there are things that we know. Most people will reject the gospel. But there are things we do not. 
Which ones will receive it? Good seed falls in bad hearts. Sometimes it's snatched up. Sometimes it's trampled upon. Sometimes it's choked and it withers. But how do you know when it's going to take root? Because sometimes that seed is cast on good soil. After many, many days, it will grow. You young people, this is, this is for you. I know of a high schooler, senior year, he's at a track meet. He's sitting next to his girlfriend. They take up a conversation with this other girl. And he begins to share the gospel with this girl. She takes out a piece of paper and starts writing down all these scripture verses. That young man, 27 years later, sitting at his desk, the phone rings. It says, is this so-and-so? It says, yes, this is, this is me. It says, do you remember talking to a, a young girl at a track meet at such and such place your senior year of high school? And I said, yeah. It says, I think her name was Kim. It says, yeah, this is Kim. I'm holding in my hand that piece of paper of all the scripture verses I wrote down. I've been trying to find you just so I could tell you I've become a Christian. It will come back after many, many days. We cannot become cynical about spreading the gospel or about the power of God and the salvation to any belief. We have such a great message, such a great message to share. It's for those who are lost. His lives feel so empty. They feel like they have no purpose, no direction. They have no joy. They have searched. They have struggled. They have tried everything, but they have no peace. No satisfaction. And they have no hope. And they've become cynical. If someone would just tell them that God forgives sin, And the worst of failures. And whose son came into this world to remove this terrible, heavy burden of guilt. To take away their fear and their sadness and their loneliness. Who can take their sin and nail it to the cross. And rescue them from its condemning power, from its ruling power. He's done this through his death, his resurrection. If somebody would just tell them. When I was a pastor in Wheaton, Illinois, we had a group of Wheaton College students that came to our church. And some of those individuals, every Friday night after supper, would go to a room on campus and pray for a long time. Get on a train, go down to Chicago, go to Millennium Park, and share the gospel with everyone who listened to them. One night when they were done, they are coming back, they realized all of a sudden they're on the wrong street. So I said, no, no, we can, we can find the train from here. And all of a sudden they hear this honking of horns. And here's this woman out in the street. And she comes off the street, standing on the sidewalk, and they pass her, and she's just sobbing, just sobbing. And they go all the way, so somebody says, we should go see if that woman's okay. So they go back to her. I said, are you okay? She tells them, I just found out that my husband of seven years is leaving me for another woman. And we just found out I'm carrying our first child. I'm so distraught that I went out on that street hoping a car would run me over and kill me. But it didn't happen, so I came off the street and I stood here and I said, God, if you are real, you need to show me right now. And that's when this group of young men came up to her. Not to hurt her, but to help her. Take her to the hospital. Make sure she was okay. Plead with her to keep her child. That there was hope. 
And two of them came back on Saturday to visit her again to see if she was okay. And she assured them, I'm going to keep this child and share the gospel with her. I have no end to the story. We don't know. But they were casting their bread. Cast your seed. Even if it means you're casting it to the most cold-hearted and closed-minded person you've ever met, the most arrogant person you've ever met, how do you know whether that person might be given ears to hear? Cast your seed. And yes, it's true, you could quote scripture to me, but small is the gate and, and narrow is the road. Yes, but that is the way that leads to life. Cast your seed. You might say, but few were chosen. Yes, but many are invited if we cast our seed. And yes, it's true, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. But Christ also says this, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You do not know what the casting of your seed will do and where it will become and where it will go and where it will take hold. You do not know whether rivers of living water will come from that and water that seed. You do not know whether the Spirit of God will come rushing into that soul and cause dead bones to live and breathe new life into that heart. So cast your bread upon the waters. Who knows, perhaps after many days you will find it. Or never see it until the kingdom of heaven. Who knows? You don't know. I don't know. But God knows. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes, which opens up to us your truth. And the way in which you see things in such unusual ways helps us to see and appreciate our responsibilities. And that our limitations are no limitation upon what you do, what you can do. You simply call us to faithfulness. So as a church, as individuals, Father, help us to cast the seed of your word. May you bring fruit from it in a way that brings most of the glory to Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.